You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The state of Oregon has the lowest rate of in-hospital deaths and the highest rate of home deaths in the nation. Oregon is also the only state with a law allowing physician-assisted suicide. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill, Professor of Medicine, Psychiatry, and Medical Humanities at the University of Rochester School of Medicine, Chairman of the Ethics Committee of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and author of many books, including Physician-Assisted Dying. Dr. Quill, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell us about the Oregon Law. Well, the Oregon Law allows for an open conversation in response to patients who uh, are terminally ill and who uh, want to have some assistance in ending their life sooner rather than later. So people who are suffering in ways that they find unacceptable are terminally ill. And Oregon can be dealt with out in the open, unlike the rest of the country where these kinds of conversations are very much underground. And how long has it been in effect? It's been about nine or ten years now. So there's a there's a lot of data. And one of the good things that happens when you open up this process is you can collect data about how frequently it occurs and what are the circumstances uh, in which it occurs. The, the most remarkable thing about the uh, Oregon law is how infrequently it's actually fully activated. It accounts for one in a thousand deaths, but unlike the rest of the country, one in a hundred people talk to their doctors about this issue, and one in six talk to their families about it. So it's, I guess even it's one in 50 talk to their doctors. So there's a lot of conversation going on about this in the doctor's office, but the number of acts are very, very rare. And how exactly does the law work? Well, the patient makes a request to obtain a lethal prescription uh, with their doctor, and if they meet the criteria, and the criteria that are that they're terminally ill, that they have access to good care, that, that they are suffering in ways that can't be relieved, and then they have to get a second opinion. So an independent physician has to assess them and uh, also agree that they meet the criteria. And then there's a 15-day waiting period where they have to just delay before they get the prescription and then revisit the doctor and make sure they're still sure about this and still meet the criteria. So people who may get this prescription may not follow through and use it. There's a number of people who start the conversation uh, about this in earnest. But of those people, a much smaller number get the prescription. And of the people who get the prescription, somewhere between a half and two-thirds ultimately take it. And and we've learned this in other settings. The possibility of of access to this is hugely reassuring, but they will never activate it, even if they get the prescription. So what does the research show are the reasons for choosing this option? Well, in Oregon, it looks like people who tend to want this option are people who are very interested in being in control of themselves. Their autonomy is very important to them. The debility that comes with advanced illness is something that's unacceptable to them. Pain is a factor, but it doesn't seem to be the central factor. Uh, and, nor does any particular symptom, but it's more tiredness of dying, uh, uh, not being able to uh, adjust to the severe debility toward the end of uh, their life. And how does this dovetail with hospice? When these people realize the benefits of hospice, does that make a difference in their decision? 
Well, the vast majority of people who are making this request are already on hospice. And again, if somebody was making this request who wasn't on hospice, you'd really want to try to get them on hospice first, because hospice is our gold standard for good care at the end of life. And, and it works most of the time. So again, if you think of one in a thousand deaths needs this, it means that 999 out of a thousand don't need it. And, and so that what we're doing tends to be acceptable it may not be perfect, but it's acceptable to most people. And again, hospice, I think, is the best program we have. A hospice uh, provides uh, added care in the home. It, it really has a team devoted to managing symptoms, pain and shortness of breath and so forth. And, and also it, it provides added opportunity to explore some of the psychological and spiritual and emotional issues that have to do with dying. So again, you'd want to be sure that uh, I, if I were going to engage in this process in Oregon, I would certainly want my patient to know about hospice and, and preferably be on hospice. And that is the case. 85% of the patients who enact the uh, Oregon Death with Dignity Law are on hospice at the time of the request. So they aren't put on hospice at the time of the request. They're already on it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill discussing physician-assisted suicide. Dr. Quill, what are the arguments in favor of physician-assisted suicide? Part of it is autonomy, that it's the patient's life, it's the patient's death, and we should give them as much control as we can in this process. We give them other choices. For example, if a patient's on a life support and they choose to stop it with knowledge, they will die without the life support. We really encourage people to have that conversation and that this is ultimately the patient's choice. Uh, so there's a choice part of it. There's also a compassion part of it. If people are having suffering that can't be relieved otherwise, we have an obligation to try to relieve that suffering and to, and to really be as creative as we can. Most of the time, again, we can find other responses that aren't physician-assisted suicide, but they are sometimes things that are pretty close, uh, heavy sedation, uh, stopping life supports, uh, stopping eating and drinking. These are all alternatives to assisted suicide that we might talk with people about about it. Uh, about it. Um, you know, we, we really allow people and, and encourage them to make as many decisions as they can to keep living, and, and that's a good thing. We treat very, very late in diseases now, but what happens with that process is there's an increased probability that at the end of that process, people reach a point where they're really falling apart uh, so that they they feel like they're so debilitated and so run down that they really are ready for death. So again, if we're going to make this commitment to work with people all through this process, it seems to me we have an obligation to help them in the very last stage of this. For most people, in my experience, the possibility of assisted suicide is really much more important than the reality. That, that gives them the notion that they aren't trapped uh, and they can keep going. But for some people, if we're going to make this commitment, we have to Make, we have to make the reality happen or help them make the reality happen. So then the next question is, what are the arguments against, right? Yes. Uh, the arguments against are that it could uh, shortcut good palliative care, good hospice care, that, gee, what we want to make sure if we're going to think about this that, that everybody's getting the best possible hospice and palliative care, and we know that that isn't always the case, that there is pain out there that isn't, that could be relieved, that isn't being relieved, that doctors aren't particularly well-versed at uh, delivering good pain management and palliative care, 
that these kind of delicate conversations uh, are very hard, and you'd want to be sure that people with real expertise in palliative care and hospice were engaging with patients in these conversations before an action would occur, and we know that might not be the case. And so those are some practical issues around it. Uh, there are also, for some people, some real moral issues around this. For some uh, people in some religions, this is this crosses a line that you can never, never intentionally hasten death. Uh, that this uh, should not be a doctor's role. That that this could undermine the profession. And I think those are all issues that should be thought through very carefully. And what are your thoughts about Dr. Kevorkian? He's a wild card in many different ways. He is somebody that you can say has done some good and some harm, and, and certainly he certainly put the issue on people's radar screen when he says things like, uh, you know, if doctors aren't going to respond to intractable suffering, I am. I think he put the gauntlet down and challenged everybody to say, well, if you don't like Kevorkian, we got to find a better way. And I think he, and and certainly there are better ways than Kevorkian's way. You know, Kevorkian's on the downside, uh, he was a, trained as a pathologist. He was not a clinician. He didn't have a lot of experience dealing with any of the nuanced issues of making these decisions with patients and families. He wasn't skilled in hospice and palliative care. He uh, assisted to die people who weren't terminally ill, who probably didn't even have a defined illness. Uh, so he really just didn't have the skill needed to to do these assessments. And 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 he was doing it to change, you know, to challenge society as much as to help the patients. So uh, on the other hand, if you talk to the families of the people who he assisted, they they see him as a savior. You know, he was somebody who would respond when everybody else wouldn't. So I, I think he um, he shouldn't have been doing these things, but he he was a real person who challenged us to do a better way. And I and I think we have come up with lots of better ways. You know, there are assisted suicide is the most controversial, and and I think, but I think we have been challenged in palliative care to come up with alternatives to assisted suicide to respond to intractable suffering. We don't have a debate now very often about whether intractable suffering sometimes exists in the face of good palliative care. It does exist. And that's that's huge because it that then creates an obligation to find ways of responding. Now again, usually the place to go is intensify the palliative regimen, but if that doesn't work then we have an obligation to respond to that. And I think Kevorkian sort of started that challenge and I think that's been, that'll be part of his legacy. What other states have pending physician-assisted suicide legislation? Well, I think getting these kinds of laws through a legislature, in my personal opinion, is not going to happen because legislatures are not, I could state it negatively in saying they're not sophisticated and mature enough in these areas to have a good conversation. It's too easy to have this conversation get dominated by the margins. So I think legislatures are not going to be able to do it. There have been, you know, there is conversation in California in the legislature. There has been conversation in Hawaii and in New Hampshire. And I think those conversations are valuable, but I don't think they'll ultimately lead to legal change. I think what's going to lead to legal change is going to be the referendum processes like in Oregon. And the next place that is highly likely to have a referendum, and it is highly likely to be, or it's reasonably likely to be successful is in the state of Washington. Washington is very near Oregon. 
the demographics are similar. Hospice is well-developed. Palliative care is well-developed. And they've had a referendum before, which almost passed, which included euthanasia. Uh, and so I think a more conservative referendum has a good chance of passing uh, in, in Washington. I think that's likely to occur in the next election cycle. And what resources are available for physicians to learn more? There are a couple of uh, organizations that tend to have well-developed websites around this particular issue. Uh, one is the Death with Dignity National Center, and you can Google DDNC. The other is uh, uh, an organization called Compassion and Choices, which does provide information around this issue. It also provides counseling for patients who are considering this both in Oregon and in other uh, states where it's currently illegal. So they kind of help patients through this process, I think, in a fairly mature way. Dr. Quill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.